This is BPM, the Berkeley podcast for music. My name's Nicholas Matthew. Find us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit us at our website at music.berkeley.edu forward slash BPM. Today, remote learning. How can we think about it differently? using lessons from music and sound studies. I'll be talking to Marianne Smart from the music department, Danielle Simon from Dartmouth College, Tom McEnany from Comparative Literature and Spanish and Portuguese, and Andrea Roth from the Law School. A seminar, a musical performance, a trial. Are any of these truly live if they're happening over Zoom? And why should it matter? What's the history of the concept of liveness, anyway? And is remote learning truly remote? So, here I am with Marianne Smart from the Music Department and Danielle Simon, who's a postdoctoral fellow at Dartmouth College, to talk about what music studies and sound studies might have to teach us about remote instruction, uh, perhaps how they might teach us to think about it differently. I was struck by a comment that I read from a UC colleague, uh, Professor Dick Starts, who teaches economics at UC Santa Barbara, when describing the difference between remote instruction and whatever it was we had before, was it you know, proximate instruction? Um, and he said, for most purposes, the online education is not the same as in-person education. And he went on, crucially, it's like the difference between listening to a CD and going to a live show. I think Professor Starts might be showing his generation a little in that comment. For uh, some of our listeners, a CD is a old-fashioned storage device for digital sounds. Um, but nonetheless, it's pretty interesting uh, that he's using music here as a paradigm for what the problem of teaching remotely might be. Marianne Smart, there's a tradition, isn't there, of regarding music as being somehow the most present of all art forms. Is it problematic when it's at a distance? Well, I think it depends on what you're talking about. I mean, if you're talking about teaching a private lesson on an instrument through a video conferencing platform, that's going to feel remote. I mean, I understand that this works quite well. And even before we were all forced into, you know, only mediated contact with our students, I knew people who were taking voice lessons on Skype with teachers in Israel who, you know, while they were living in California and claimed it was the best experience they could have. So I'd say there's, you know, there's nothing that's impossible and there's no absolutes. Um, but if you're doing what I do and teaching music history or music appreciation, your music is always going to be mediated anyway. You're, every now and then I play an example on the piano, but a lot more of what I do is play something from an MP3, play an example from my laptop, point something out about it, play it again. So it's, it's a recording. You know, most of what I'm talking about is recordings. It's, it's me that's either in person or mediated, not the music. But, but what I understood your question to be about was maybe more about musical performance settings and what the background is that causes people to romanticize 
in-person live music experiences. This is some sort of cultural paradigm that has been with us for a long time and still stays very strong. I mean, one of the things that, um, that our family was going to be doing uh, this summer that we weren't able to do is my daughter was going to go to see a Harry Styles concert in San Jose. Um, I bought the cheapest tickets I could get for that concert, which would, you know, which were going to be in Levi Sta at Levi Stadium, which probably holds 30,000 people or something. And she was going to be in the back row. Um, but that was still going to be a special experience for her and her friend, not at all like the constant listening to Harry Styles on the car radio or, you know, on her Air AirPods or whatever. So why, why do people believe that? Um, I think it, in the case of the pop concert, it probably has the most to do with the people that you're with, what they're doing, what kinds of sounds they're making, the kind of simultaneity of the affect. Um, and that's also a thing at classical performances. You're probably not experiencing the same thing as the other people in the concert hall, but you are just enough that you can convince yourself you're having a collective experience. Another aspect of, I think, that makes people love live performance and mythologize it a bit is the idea that anything can happen. The accident, the mishap, um, or on the other end, the sort of one of a t one once in a lifetime epiphany that can happen in a performance. People who love music and love going to hear music kind of live for those things. And the bad ones are almost as valuable to us in our kind of, you know, storytelling and memory banks as the good ones, I think. It's like a guarantee that this, this is a human direct experience. Over the years, people who theorise the arts have frequently turned to this quality of being there in front of you that artistic practices have, um, sometimes called presence. And in fact, some people have argued that music somehow makes this presence greater or more appreciable than other artistic practices. What does that mean? Even if you're talking about the distinction between live theater and music, I think you're still, the body is still a little more important for music in terms of how it shapes the sound, how the breathing, the movement of the body inflect what you hear and the, the kind of pacing and even the emotion of what gets communicated. The German historian and cultural theorist Walter Benjamin in his immensely famous 1935 essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, or Reproducibility, framed the presence of art in terms of its aura. What is aura? And can we say that music has it? The aura for Benjamin, uh, I think, had two main implications. Or, you know, to have aura, you had to have at least two conditions satisfied. One is original and unique. So the aura is what you experience or what's produced when you have an encounter with something that's in its original form. And he used the, the wonderful word um, withers for what happens to the artistic experience once it's being reproduced. The aura withers if it's a reproduction. The other condition has something to do with tradition, historical setting, and ritual. Um, in that essay about mechanical reproduction, he frequently returns to artistic uh, traditions or artistic practices that have that 
originally had something to do with ritual, conjuring, or magic. And the implication is that kind of all art that's worth anything is written into some kind of ritual practices. And you lose contact with those ritual and magical forces once the thing is reproduced and set all over the place. You know, there's a fairly deep history, isn't there, of musical technologies that try and stand in for the performing body. How have they tried to compensate for the ostensible loss of what we could call aura that this entails? I think this is a constant quest with mechanical reproduction. What can we add? What can we capture to make it seem real? Something I ran across reading actually just earlier this week and searching for audio examples um, is uh, the machines for music making that were created in the 18th century. Um, A kind of fascination with the boundaries between mechanism and the human meant that there was a fad for making automated musicians. There was a famous flute player made by the same guy who made the duck that could eat and digest in front of its viewers. And I think there was also a harpsichord player, a woman sitting at a harpsichord whose fingers could be seen to move in sync with the sounds that a kind of music box mechanism would produce. What really struck me about these two automata from the mid 18th century is that both of them were celebrated above all because the figurines could be seen and heard to breathe. For the flute player, the breathing is essential, of course, to make the sound, not so much for a harpsichordist. But I think it's an essential component of the emotion that's supposed, the motion and the emotion that are supposed to go with producing convincing musical expression. The Berkeley Podcast for Music. Danielle Simon. Built into this whole discussion that we've been having is a distinction between liveness and things that are not live, things that are reproduced or mediated. That might seem to be a self-evident distinction. Is it? And when did people start talking about live music anyway? Yeah, so liveness can really mean a couple of things. And I think it's important in order to understand the historical trajectory of the concept of liveness that we tease these things apart. The first is spatial liveness. So that's where you're in the same location. And then there's temporal liveness or what we might call simultaneity. Uh, So this is when you hear or you see something at the exact same time that it happens, at least on a perceptual level. Those need to be separated in order for us to really have a conception of an original versus uh, reproduction. The moment that this uh, distinction or this separation really happens is with the invention of sound reproducing technologies. So things like the phonograph in 1877 or the radio in the early 20th century. So with the production of these kinds of sound reproducing technologies, we get the separation of that temporal experience of the sound from the moment of its production. Why did it become important for musicians and recording companies to stress the relationship between a reproduction and an ostensible original? Isn't that something that people just assumed? People didn't hear a recording and immediately um, and naturally, we might say, connect that recording to a live performance. That was something that people had to be taught 
and they did so uh, through ads that circulated images of singers alongside images of these recording technologies. And how about the business side of music? I mean, since musicians were paid for particular engagements, I'm assuming there was a significant economic implication to technologies that could somehow extract their labour, store it, and then sort of release it on a later occasion. That's certainly true. I mean, at the beginning, performers themselves didn't necessarily know how to perform for these kinds of technologies. There are stories about radio singers or radio performers in the studio who were really thrown off by the fact that there was no echo because there were sound dampening curtains in the studio, or there was no applause because there wasn't an audience who was actively responding to their singing. And then once performers did become comfortable with producing these kinds of studio sounds, there was, I think, uh, a great deal of concern and anxiety that these recorded sounds would supplant the role of live performers. Sarah Thornton, who is a sociologist, has written about how the British Musicians Union in the 1950s put together a propaganda campaign. And this was to compete against the circulation of records, particularly in places like dance clubs. And this was motivated by a concern that live performers would not get paid if these recordings were played in dance clubs. Um, and so this musicians union created a propaganda campaign to essentially convince people that there was a real difference between a live concert performance and a recorded performance. And I think that language is still with us today. Marianne Smart, I'm wondering then how we can transfer some of these lessons into a different understanding of remote instruction. If for example, we are more inclined to be sceptical of the idea of presence because we can historicise and deconstruct the concept of liveness. Perhaps we can talk instead about the ways in which performers are changed by the presence of new media networks and configurations, the way in which singers, say, are performing for the network. And so can we say that perhaps teachers are in some sense performing for the network? Going back to that Santa Barbara professor that you quoted, Dick Starts, after hearing that quote, hearing you say it, reading it a couple of times, I started thinking, what kind of teacher is he? And what does he think good teaching is? Um, my guess would be that somebody who draws that distinction between listening to a CD and going to a live show with the moral being that going to a live show is equivalent to good teaching in person, that is probably a teacher who puts a big value on charisma. That actually maybe charisma is a, is a synonym for presence in this conversation once you start talking about remote instruction. Charisma does a lot in teaching. It's, it's a powerful force, but I wouldn't say that it's the most powerful force. The most important thing in teaching for me is spurring some kind of new understanding or rearranging of assumptions in the moment. Um, but it doesn't actually have to happen in real time. That kind of thing can actually happen better with a little bit of lag where everybody has some time to think. And actually, if you think for a minute about one of the most common pedagogical strategies that we all 
have learned and employ. Um, it's a really low tech one, but everybody seems to agree that it works. Sort of think, pair, share, or any other kind of group, small group work. You know, stop for a second, like write a little reflection on this or a little discussion post statement, and then come back into the real interaction with what you've reflected. Teaching remotely is kind of ideally situated to let students do more of that and let professors structure more of that into the week of instruction. My experience so far in, which is a very short experience to compared to a lot of people's because I've only been teaching online for two weeks, is that uh, charisma is probably more available to me in the form of recorded lectures than it is in live real-time teaching in Hertz Hall. I'm more of a conversational, like extremely authentic, but not particularly performative kind of teacher. And when it comes to recording little bits of lectures to release on, you know, on the learning management system for the students, I'm going to think more about how to put those together as performances, maybe juxtapose surprising elements, although I do try to do that in class all the time edit out some of the pauses. Um, so far I've re-recorded my lectures a couple of times and they get shorter every time I re-record them, which is surely a good thing, you know, cutting out the meandering that happens in live experiences. So I'm not saying I don't want to go back to being face-to-face -face with my students, but there's a lot of good that's possible in this, uh, in this media environment. You know, we describe the current pedagogical paradigm as remote instruction. But I'm beginning to wonder whether this mode of instruction is remote at all. After all, we're on little screens in our students' pockets. We're beamed to the middle of California and to the east coast of the USA, to India and to China. Could it be that when we talk about remoteness, we're unwittingly reinforcing this specious idea of presence that clearly still informs the way we think about our teaching and particularly teaching about music. The question makes me conscious that we're talking about this completely from the perspective of the instructors um, and I do so far feel closer to my students than I would after you know just a couple of class meetings in the second week of semester. There's a whole range of uh, you know adjustments to the experience that make it feel that way that their names appear on the screen when I'm teaching them. So I'm not having to learn their names. I just, um, I've met with a couple of them individually from you know, my house to their house. And part of, I think, what makes us feel close is that we're in an emergency situation though. So we're taking time to talk about things that we don't normally take time to talk about. And we're very conscious of everyone being under stress. And that's, uh, it's obviously not a good thing, but maybe it brings a new empathy to teaching that is uh, we don't always take enough time for in normal years. On the other hand, I think the students really miss being in the classroom. I haven't done a big survey, but this is what I hear from my colleagues who post things about their teaching experiences and the sense I get from the students I have talked to that they would rather be in a group in a classroom hearing from us and they don't really want to be learning from home whether their home is an apartment in berkeley or the house that they grew up in um, so their sense of remote versus intimate and up close might be quite different
I guess the other thing to add would be that while our, our one-on-one interactions with students may in fact be less remote, students' interaction with their peers is even more remote. From talking to my students this summer, that was what they missed the most, was being in a classroom, not just with me, but with, with other students. Well, thanks to both of you. I've started to wonder whether we're even talking live or not, to be honest. Um, by the time anyone hears this, it'll certainly be highly mediated and possibly simultaneous. Next, my conversation with Andrea Roth from the Law School and Tom McEnany from Complit. I started out by asking Tom about his book, Acoustic Properties, and thinking of the effect that the remote learning experience will have on our classroom teaching in future, I wanted to hear more about how a new media form might be able to somehow bleed into an older one. In the case of his book, this means novels and the radio. He started off talking about the great American novelist of the radio era, John Dos Passos, and his trilogy, USA. Dos Passos is a huge figure in the 30s, right? In 1936, he's on the cover of Time magazine. And by 1938, he publishes his trilogy of novels, USA, as one volume. And in the preface to the trilogy, he writes, it is a radio network, the speech of the people. And no readers really seem to pay much attention to what what he meant by that. But if you look back, what he's trying to do is he's trying to represent this newly networked sense of national connection through people who never see each other. They're never in the same physical space, but they're hearing the same things at the same time. And that's fundamentally important to the history of radio, that kind of sense of intimacy with people with whom you're at a great distance that you're not connected to. When Jean Paul Sartre reads Dos Passos uh, and decides to publish his own trilogy about a decade later after the Second World War in France, he writes in this little introduction to the first two published volumes that he's barred from the technical research of John Dos Passos and Virginia Woolf on simultaneity. And what Sartre gives us in the second book, The Reprieve at the beginning, is a bunch of different people in Czechoslovakia, in Marseille, in London, listening to the radio at the same time. And they're listening to find out what's going to happen with this famous pact between Neville Chamberlain and Hitler. And so what we're getting here in all these little jump cuts is Sartre representing in narrative form what we never get to see about the radio, which is that connection between all of the different listeners. So that's how radio starts to enter into the kind of formal structure of the novel. You know, one thing that's been recurrent in uh, all of the conversations that we've been having in this episode is that when a new media form or a new media configuration appears, it alerts people to the immediacy of the previous status quo. You've just described the way in which a new media form can produce entirely different sense of community, completely different sense of connection, a completely different neighborhood. I'm wondering, you know, to, to sort of put it in connection with the remote learning situation that we've got now, are we realizing that the classroom was just a media form all along? And it, similarly, you know, was, is the neighborhood, you know, we think of the neighborhood, you, the thing you see when you look out of the window, was it that the neighborhood just a artificial or a contingent 
media form all along, which was ready to be reconfigured by things like radio and then subsequently, of course, television and the internet and so on? Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it. And with, you know, with radio, the reason that I was interested in radio when I went to, to write this, this book was because I was looking for the prehistory of wireless culture, right? What, how, how do we understand our moment when there's already been a moment where we had these wireless networks? We did deal with legal issues of copyright at that moment. We did deal with legal issues um, related to who's going to be able to own the air, how, how are we going to parcel out bandwidth, etc. Um, and then, of course, the legal and extra legal issues of empire in which you had radio broadcasts that were going throughout hemisphere across hemisphere and in between the united states and cuba um throughout the 1960s and 70s and into the 80s there were radio wars that's how, how they were described by the state department and by uh, the cuban revolution and all of this was in some ways a fight over who gets to participate in what I call the neighborhood of the Americas. And that's building off of what FDR in the New Deal period um, described as the good neighbor policy, right? The United States would be a good neighbor to all these countries in Latin America. What that tended to mean for them was, uh, you know, better, better economic trading partners uh, and better forms of exploitation of, of, of markets in Latin America. And those neighborhoods came into eventually violent conflict with things like, you know, the Cuban revolution, the Cuban missile crisis, et cetera. But there is a way in which radio's utopian idea for writers is that yes, we can reconfigure our notion of neighborhood so that it's not just local and we can connect with people across the world, across the hemisphere and feel again, that intimate connection through a moment of simultaneous listening. And I think that simultaneity is so central to liveness. And the last thing that I'll say about this is in terms of our moment and in, in, um, in the neighborhood, on the one hand, we feel like we, you know, we can invite anyone into our classroom now um, from across the world. I'm going to have some friends from Cuba actually come in and, and speak in my class in a few weeks. Um, and I wouldn't be able to bring them here otherwise. But on the other hand, because we are home so often, or at least I'm home a lot now, I actually am getting to know my neighborhood a lot better. I, I meet my neighbors, all my neighbors are, are at home or if they, if they go off to work, they, they come back and we meet with them on the porch. And so there's a new, I think, connection, uh, a new neighborliness that's growing out of this strange uh, isolation at the same time. That's, that's been my experience at least. The Berkeley Podcast for Music. Andrea Roth from the Law School. To what extent do people in the legal profession discuss these problems? And to what extent is this new regime responsible for a rethinking of whether the courtroom itself is a media form and what kind of media form it is? Well, I think the legal system hasn't talked enough about how the courtroom itself is, uh, you know, face-to-face -face confrontation in the courtroom is itself a highly mediated experience. I mean, first of all, from the obvious fact that trials are the way that society adjudicates criminal disputes about past events that have already occurred somewhere at some intersection or in some room somewhere where someone was murdered. And so you have witnesses coming, bringing their faces, the author of the writing on their face, in a certain way that is rehearsed, that is translated through certain highly curated and truncated 
uh, and filtered questions from counsel and cross-examination itself, uh, the, the lawyerly art form that I think is largely the reason that we have fetishized face-to-face confrontation now. Our profession has such an investment in keeping cross-examination alive and central to the idea of scrutinizing the veracity of witnesses uh, that we're not going to give it up anytime soon. What's the history of that fetish? Like, Why do you think that the legal profession is so attached to it? Well, to be fair, it's got a pretty impressive pedigree. Face-to-face confrontation is is in the, the Bible. It was a procedural right in, in Roman times. Then it took a, a little nap for a while and then shows up again in medieval France. And really the the idea of face-to-face confrontation was largely about the ability of the defendant to simply see their accuser. And is largely because there was nothing else to the case. Long ago, sometimes the accusers were simply the private parties, the, the harmed parties themselves. So if you wanted to know anything about the case, really the accuser being there present, explaining their side of the story was, was all that there was. And so if you wanted to scrutinize their accusations, seeing their demeanor and having them look you in the eye was really all, all that you could hope for. But you really don't see the rise of cross-examination and a shift in the justification for the face-to-face confrontation requirement in England until the mid-19th century, a little bit earlier in the American colonies. So in 1904, you have a famous evidence scholar, John Henry Wigmore, declaring that cross-examination is the greatest legal engine ever created for the invention of truth. And this phrase has been quoted thousands of times in in court cases. So this hyperbolic language describing the ability of cross-examination to get at insincerity in particular, it doesn't become hyperbolic until the late 19th century, early 20th century, I would say. We've already seen that the internet and online digital tools have reconfigured the kind of challenges that the legal system has, not least in things like, you know, what counts as interstate commerce now when everything is so radically networked. I'm wondering, though, thinking about the paradigm of remote instruction, how you think the return of courts and of trials will be permanently affected by this particular moment of disruption, whether there'll be certain beliefs or practices that we'll be more skeptical about or perhaps we'll never return. I think so in in a few ways. First of all, there are some perhaps unintended benefits to certain parties of the new networked system (laughs) that hopefully we will continue to use. For example, uh, increased national public access to trials. Of course, that creates just another audience. And so when people come to court to tell their story. Now they're not merely telling it to the judge and the defendant and the jury in the room, but also to everyone who is tapped into the YouTube channel for that courtroom. It's also just so much easier thinking not so much about trials, but so many status hearings and sentences and arraignments and all of these other hearings that people can be put in jail for failing to show up to. It's just so much easier and less costly and and more convenient for them to keep their job and hire expert witnesses and 
do any number of things that right now are sometimes prohibitively expensive. And I think it will make trials less expensive and easier for defendants and, and witnesses in a number of ways and jurors. I think that in terms of face-to-face confrontation, it's, it's putting the lie to the idea that cross-examination and the ability to look a witness in the eye in a courtroom within a certain distance is the best way to scrutinize the reliability of witness testimony. And of course, this, is, this corresponds with the rise in witnesses who cannot be cross-examined, like machines and algorithms, not to mention animals who were around at the founding. It's starting to become obvious that there are, are ways to scrutinize witness testimony that might be more helpful. For example, the ability to find out information about the witness, about their prior statements, about suggestive identification procedures that might have been used, about confidential informants that might have been part of a sting operation. Information that right now the Supreme Court has said that a defendant has no constitutional right to, but that after this Zoom COVID era, defendant might say, you know, (laughs) I'd much rather have all of that or enough money to get an expert witness in cross-racial identification problems um, than to have back the old world where I got to look this eyewitness in the face and see the beads of sweat because lots of witnesses, first of all, aren't lying. They're simply mistaken. So there are no beads of sweat. And because the whole idea of face-to-face was largely, again, was mediated to begin with. People don't necessarily recant false testimony in the courtroom. I'm imagining that there are some people who will nonetheless think that there's some, something that will be lost and that maybe even justice will suffer from the loss of liveness. And there seems to be, you know, in your explanation of some of the benefits, I suppose you could call it a kind of anti-theatricality, right? The, 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 the courtroom is a theatre and people put on performances and people of a certain age, you know, certainly Generation X is like I think maybe all of us are, um, will remember... OJ trying on the glove, for example, as being these sort of synecdocal moments in the theatre of court performance. And it sounds as though you're saying, actually, that theatricality is a distraction, that what this enables is a kind of clean, almost bureaucratic, possibly even algorithmic (laughs) exercise of justice in which the whole fuss and nonsense of bodies and beads of sweat and people reading each other's faces is put to one side as some kind of outmodish, maybe even occult sort of fetish. Well, I'm definitely still in favor of an adversarial system, but I think that you could have a party-driven system where we don't buy into the false idea of neutrality while still not buying into the idea that the primary way of scrutinizing testimony is real time in one trial that happens over a few days in front of one particular jury where people come in and sit down in a witness stand and the primary way of scrutinizing them is through physical confrontation and cross-examination in the oath. And so if we had a hybrid party-driven system that recognized that criminal investigations now largely occur in forensic labs and 
through means other than simply gumshoe detective work talking to witnesses, even though that's still part of the system, then we would just be more honest about what's needed to scrutinize this type of, of testimony that defendants in 2020 are, are facing. And so if it requires getting an expert witness to look at the source code of the program that is accusing you of having been at the crime scene, that might be more important than real-time cross-examination of the person who happened to have written part of the program 10 years ago. Cross-examination will always have its place. You know, the other value that we haven't talked about yet is, is public legitimacy and dignity. And, uh, you know, the, the legal system isn't simply about accurately adjudicating claims. It's about adjudicating claims in a way that the public will respect. And so if it turns out that defendants need to feel like they can look somebody in the eye in order to feel that they had a fair day in court, then there's no real way to argue around that if the public feels like a trial needs to be done in a certain way through certain rituals to be counted as a legitimate means of adjudicating disputes, then again, there's, there's no real getting around that. The Berkeley Podcast for Music. Goodness, I immediately start thinking of all of our students and perhaps what they expect of the dignity and, and practice of being a professor. You're both teaching classes right now under the new regime. Tom, you, you, you've spoken already about the way in which one media form shapes, bleeds into another, permanently transforms it. Andre, you've just spoken about how an entire political legal infrastructure can be shown to be a contingent collection of media practices in order to guarantee certain outcomes. Tom, I'll go to you first. How do you think that our classroom habitus will be permanently changed by this experience. How do you think, you know, especially perhaps with, with, with reference to conceptions of neighbourhood, of the community of Berkeley, but also of the kinds of perhaps face-to-face privileging pedagogical methods that we're so used to before, how do you think maybe the new medium of the classroom will look in the light of this moment of disruption? Yeah, so those are all great questions and, and, and heavy questions. I mean, the first thing it makes me think of is the question that you just asked to, to Andrea around theatricality, is that the courtroom is a, a space of theater and in the adversarial system, um, and the classroom is often also a space of theater, but we're learning how to perform that theater in a new medium. And because Zoom happens to be the format, it seems the primary format, uh, you hear people getting very technically savvy at how to organize the particular space of Zoom and the theater that's, that's there. So you could have the chat going at the same time that you're giving a lecture and there are two, you know, two forms of pedagogy happening right there. You might use the, the whiteboard function. I just bought an iPad just to teach this semester so that I could quote unquote live annotate uh, documents with my students, and there's an annotation feature on the on, on Zoom as well. Everyone is writing on a document at the same time, and you can see those thoughts happening. I think for literature classes in particular, that will change things. Andre, you, you don't just uh, uh, you know practice law; you t- teach law, and you know very important in law schools is 
what I believe law schools call the Socratic method, or I think everyone thinks they do the Socratic method. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, that has probably changed a lot, at least since Socrates was, was doing it in his medium. It, does the Socratic method, well, one, what is the Socratic method in law school? And does it require simultaneity? And does it require liveness? Or does it work perfectly well uh, in this new regime? I think it works well, and there are some artifacts of this new regime that I'm going to miss when we go back to the artifacts of the classroom. Uh, but so the Socratic method, um, some people, again, think it's just hostile questioning. But it's, it's a series of questions intended to get the students through a series of hypotheticals to recognize the problem with the direction in which they're going to try to find a limiting principle that would make sense as a legal rule and eventually get them to that limiting principle. So if they generally believe that there should be a duty to rescue, which there isn't under Anglo-American law, unless you're in Vermont, um, then you might ask the students, well, okay, what if you've, uh, somebody doesn't swim? And they would put themselves in grave danger by having to jump in and rescue the person. And the student says, well, that's different. Uh, you know, okay, so if, if you can do it without reasonably putting yourself in danger, then you should have a duty to rescue. Okay, new premise. Now you ask another question. That, and, and so that's the concept. It doesn't have to be particularly hostile or adversarial. Um, the whole idea is to get to limiting principles. And, and so what I like about Zoom and this, this thing you're trying to do, which is to teach them not just the material, but to think like a lawyer, is that there, there's nobody in the back of the classroom, so to speak, on Zoom. And so I, I think it, it has, in some ways, an intimacy and the ability to, just to get super concrete, concrete for a minute, the ability to see the PowerPoint very well, no matter where you are, that I think is nice for those purposes. I also think it's nice, an artifact of the classroom that I don't like is that you're always sitting next to the same person. And so over Zoom, because you can randomly assign people to breakout rooms, you have people who don't normally talk to each other and have to deal with each other's views on the duty to rescue, suddenly talking to each other for two or three minutes about what their thoughts are and performing the Socratic method on each other, ideally, or at least that's what I assume is happening in my break room. Tom mentioned the chat room and, and uh, the performative nature of the classroom. I, I fancy myself funny sometimes, but the problem over Zoom is that you can't hear whether students are laughing at your your jokes, uh, inadvertent or otherwise. Um, but the chat function allows them to post in a judicious, appropriate way, memes, uh, tiny comments that, that then go to the entire class, including the professor. And it, it builds a certain community that uh, doesn't actually happen when you're just writing a note to your neighbor in the back of the class. So yeah, I, I think it's a nice way of having the Socratic method without being particularly adversarial in a way. I think some students um, take their time. Uh, there's some literature saying that female students or students who are perhaps just shyer in general take their time to uh, before volunteering or raising their virtual hand. And I think the chat room allows them to think of questions over time 
that could be incredibly important to the discussion and completely consistent with the Socratic method. The breakout rooms are a really different configuration of group work that would happen in the classroom. And I think the th one of the things that's nice about them is it is genuine privacy. So when they go into those rooms, it's just the two or three or four of them speaking to each other and they don't have a professor sitting over their shoulder necessarily. And if the professor shows up, they can see that appearance in their, in their Zoom box. On the other hand, from a faculty perspective, what you miss are the overheard aspects of conversation where you might be paying attention to one group and they know you're paying attention to them, but you hear something out of the corner of your ear, another idea, another trajectory for conversation. And when you come back out of those miniature groups into the larger uh, classroom setting of 20 or 40 or 50 students, then you can bring together those ideas that you overheard. And that's either more difficult and sometimes impossible to do in, in the breakout setting, but it also does make me think about the issue of privacy with, with Zoom. And I think it's interesting reflecting on what Andrew was saying about the courtroom space, you know, appearing on a YouTube channel is that when, you know, part of, because I am on the, on the Gen X side of the millennial divide and I, I'm, I'm less, less happy and less uh, ready to, to publish all of my thoughts whether it be on, on Twitter or show, you know, my photographs on Instagram or, or, or even Facebook. And so I think that when we consider the classroom space, just the intimacy of people's rooms, the three of us are speaking right now and you can see into the background of a room and many students don't want to show where they're connecting from. And so they'll turn their camera off. And this raises, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's an issue of privacy. Um, on the other hand, it's an issue of pedagogy that goes back to that face-to-face -face question. How much do we need to see someone else's face when we're holding a conversation with them? Andrew's talking about you want to get some feedback when you're making a joke. Going back to, to, to radio history, Hoover, you know, President Hoover of the United States, he, when he was on the radio, he said he hated it. And we don't need to feel any sympathy for Hoover, but he, you know, he, because there was, there was no feedback. He, he had no sense of what people were thinking about what he said. And that does enter into and transform the pedagogical space when you're teaching on Zoom, I think. It's a, it's a, it's a big issue, but it's also this whole history where suddenly broadcast has become the norm of our culture, where we write something on Twitter that's sent out to anyone who wants to connect to it. It's not that point-to-point -point communication with the telephone. It's instead this broadcast method where everyone is privy to your, your, your thoughts. And so it's this intimate public that people talk about in relation to, to radio history. This whole conversation comes around, I think, to a couple of things that where we started this episode with. You know, one, the, the discomfort of a generation of suppliers of knowledge or performance or music or whatever it might be with newly networked, newly present, newly disruptive media configurations. So there we are worrying about whether anyone's finding our jokes funny and there are, there's Hoover, you know, hating the absent audience. There's a whole generation of singers not knowing what to do when there's no one saying ooh at their high notes and a giving them applause in the middle of a song for their tremendous coloratura. But then there's also the kind of consumption side, you know, which we keep coming back to as well, which is that students are configured in different ways, that their experience of learning is very different and they are going to 
you know, hack it in all sorts of ways, just as they do the classroom. They'll rearrange their chairs, they'll find ways of talking to each other differently or of subverting or improving the pedagogical scenario. And one, one assumes, one hopes that that's uh, going to continue happening uh, with this new media regime. Thanks to Marianne Smart, Danielle Simon, Tom McEnany, and Andrea Roth. Follow us on Twitter or visit our website for links to further reading and listening based on this episode. You'll also find information about Music Department Defence, how to donate to the Music Department, and much, much more. Next time, I'll be talking to Maria Sonjovitsky from the Music Department about Eurovision and her book, Wild Music. My name's Nicholas Matthew, and that was BPM. On swearing on your testicles, <laughs> that you're telling the truth. Uh, there's no getting around that if, if that's what society demands.